Welcome back to Sleep for Performance podcast. Today, I am joined by Nicola Barkley. Barkley. See, I can never pronounce Barclay. anybody's name. Barkley. <laughs> Barkley. As in, as in Barkley's Bank. Barkley's Bank, yes. Bringing back some bad memories there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Nicola joins us today from the UK. So we're in the inverse opposite relationship at the moment. I'm in the afternoon and Nicola is bright and early in the morning. What is it? 7.30? 9.30. Reasonable oh. time. Oh, yeah, it's been a nice, easy morning so far. Nice, easy morning. That's good. And I suppose it's starting to get a bit bright there for you guys in the morning. So uh, That's lovely. We had a bit of rain last night and it's all cleared now. Beautiful sunny day in Oxford. Oh, very, very nice. Now we have actually some uh, overlap because you, you're living in Oxford, is it? That's right. Yeah. Right. And you actually worked at Oxford for a while at the university there. Yeah. So I was a lecturer in sleep medicine at the University, university of Oxford for the last five years up until last September yeah the last September we'll go through a little bit at the moment but we do have a mutual connection so you would have worked then with um Russell Foster yeah that's right so Russell was my yeah. PhD examiner oh amazing I bet he was a fantastic examiner he's pretty good he didn't give me too much shit that was good <laughs> <laughs> and then myself and Russell um back a few years ago actually traveled to the Pilbara region of Western Australia and we spoke at a as kind of an invited uh, oil and gas seminar on fatigue risk management stuff so it was myself russell peter eastwood and david hillman and another gentleman who wasn't sleep uh, related um and we went up there and we spent a few days up in the pilbara and um myself and russell did a bit of media up there as well and yeah spent a few days there together so and then russell actually came to our lab at the UW, at uwa center for sleep for a while so nice i don't know if you met any of those guys i think they went to oxford one time peter eastwood david hillman did you meet those no, I don't know those guys. No, they're, I know Russell at, very well. Yeah, they're at UWA, but um, they went over there and did some stuff with um, with Russell, I think, for a while. I don't know what was going on, but um, yeah. So I've, um, and I had Russell on the podcast as well before. So Russell's oh, been right. on. We can go back and listen to all the lies he told. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's a fantastic scientist, great speaker, and a fantastic human. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, Russell. Looking forward a, to reading his new book. Yeah, he said, um, I remember I was trying to talk to him last year about something. He's like, I'm just I'm just head down um, putting some work in on a book. So he didn't say what the title was. So what, what is the title of his book? Do you, know? do you know what he's focusing on? It's all about circadian rhythms and circadian yeah, yeah. health. I think it's called Lifetime. Okay, because I have his other book up that. here, Rhythms of Life is up here, or Rhythm of, Rhythms of Life is up here on the shelf. I have that already. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's a he's a good guy. He's got some great talks. And and one thing I like about Russell is um sometimes like with professors, they tend to get a little bit up themselves and get a little bit kind of they don't talk to the plebs. And so he was always very nice and gracious, even when I was a PhD student. And he, you know, and that's a I think that's a true measure of somebody, how how they treat everybody. And he's I've seen him in oh, action. Yeah. He's he's a very, very nice guy. He is yeah. a very nice guy. Yeah, he's great. He's been a fantastic lab leader um in the time that I've known him at Oxford. So yeah. Anyway, let's not let's not blow smoke up Russell. People have been trying to fanboy him here for, for no reason. Exactly. <laughs> um, if you'd like to know more about Russell, please dial nine. Um, so, <laughs> so Nicola, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did where did you grow up, and um, how did you get into this weird, wonderful way of world of science? So yeah, long time ago. Now I was always interested in psychology, and so I grew up in Brighton on the south coast of England. Um, still one of my favourite cities in the world hoping to go back there sometime not far from here really 
And so, yeah, I studied at the University of Sussex, a psychology degree, and was always really fascinated by science and the methods of science. And I was kind of one of the odd ones out that loved statistics and loved data analysis. So I would always be really excited about the research process and collecting data and learning more about different types of data analysis. So kind of my undergraduate really sort of um, set the stage for my real interest in the scientific method. So I definitely didn't want to stop after my undergrad. So I wanted to go further and understand more. My interest then was really about anxiety and uh, had a strong interest in catastrophic thoughts and catastrophic worry um, from my own experience, plus also experience of family members with catastrophic worry. And so I really wanted to investigate that. So I kind of looked for PhD supervisors in that field and came across my wonderful PhD supervisor, Professor Alice Gregory, who has done a lot of work in child and adolescent mental health, focusing on anxiety, but she had a strong interest in sleep. And so I went up to London, she's at Goldsmiths at the University of London. And we had a conversation about my interests and about her interests. And it was really that conversation which sparked my interest in sleep from seeing how new it was at the time. So this was, when did I start my PhD? 2007 or eight, we had these conversations. And so at the time, sleep was a much smaller field. It's grown a lot now, but mm. you know, even that short amount of time away, it was relatively new, especially thinking about the overlap between mental health and sleep in the area that we were working on was, was quite novel at the time. So I kind of thought, oh, actually, do you know what? This is really interesting. So we started kind of looking at the overlap between catastrophic worry and sleep. Of course, that is going to be a link there. Um, and then further on down the line, I decided to do a PhD in that area and then sort of moved more of my focus into the sleep world. And so, yeah, so I pursued that even more in depth with Alice. And yeah. who is still now a great mentor of mine, plus also a colleague of mine and a co-founder of mine. So, um, yeah, we're still working. We're still busy bees. I think we've, we've kind of got a working relationship that will never end, which is just wonderful. And that's Alice Gregory, is it? Yeah. Yeah. OK. So just out of interest, like in, you said you grew up in Brighton and then and you went to the University of, was it Sussex or Surrey? Sussex. Sussex. Yeah. Um, because I think the University of Surrey do some sleep stuff, but um, there's a lot of sleep stuff goes on at University of Surrey, yeah. Yeah, um, but when people when you go to school in the UK, because it's slightly different than in Ireland, you do like O levels, then A levels. Is that right? So is it like O levels at sixteen and A levels around seventeen, eighteen? Is that how it works? They're called GCSEs for I think that they used to be O levels. Back in the day, many years ago. (laughs) Oh, I don't remember that. (laughs) My my parents did O-levels and then A-levels. My generation did GCSEs, which are equivalent. I don't know why they changed the name. It's basically the same sort of thing. So GCSEs and then A-levels. And then then actually after my A-levels, I I didn't plan to go to university. None of my family members went to university. The school I went to didn't push for university. I went to a pretty rough school. And um, so it was never really on the agenda to go to university. I started a job. I, my career aspiration when I was 17 was to own a cake shop. And I started in the world of work, not doing anything related to baking, um, which is not an interest of mine anymore at all. And in the world of work, somebody said to me, you know, have you ever thought about going to university? You've got some really good A-levels. You should probably go to university. It hadn't really occurred to me at all. I just thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll check it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I never really left. 
it, it is kind of it is funny like because um similar to yourself i went to a pretty rough school and went to a pretty well, well i wouldn't say it was a rough school but i was in a rough class and hung around with a rough crew and i left school early and joined the military i did like the equivalent of the what we call um geez what's it even called now leaving cert was called which is like the equivalent i think of a levels which you would do before going to university you do it at 17 or 18 mm-hmm. uh, I did, and i did quite abysmally but i had left like you know four or five months beforehand joined the military but it's interesting because if you would ask me when I was 20 or 21, what kind of people go to university? I'm like, oh, just posh people who go to posh schools. And that's yeah. definitely not that, definitely not me. But interesting enough, <laughs> over the last few years, nearly, I would say 70 to 80 percent of people I talk, particularly at PhD level, are people who would never would have considered it. I think the posh people drop out at undergrad and master's. And then yeah. the, pe- the people who don't come from a posh background go, Jesus Christ, I can actually go further here. So I'll go. I, I, I haven't been found out yet, maybe. And they keep going. <laughs> and, they keep, and they keep going. And I, I've come across people for, who did PhDs from, you know, I was smoking bongs on a couch with my mates and I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then one day I was like, I just need to stop doing this to, you know, I had been working in a factory job and I was sick of it to, you know, your story there, a cake shop to me and the military to, and, and the list goes on and on and on of these weird and wonderful paths into science. And I think in some ways, I think society looks at PhDs and thinks it's a bunch of uh, elite posh people who don't have them connected with the world. But from my experience in, in the sort of the bio- biological and psychological sciences, anyway, predominantly it's been, no, it's been a bunch of lunatics actually. <laughs> so, which makes for like kind of fruitful um you know, research and, and outcomes as well, because you have a bit of, I think, diversity in thinking. So, yeah, but yeah, it's interesting that you said that. What, so what did you do then? Was it like a psychology degree? Yeah, I did a psychology degree and was always really interested in mental health. Okay. So I pursued that and, and mental health and neuroscience um, at the time that I, well, just before I started my undergrad, actually, which this is kind of the impetus to go into this field. And um, my dad was very ill with a brain tumour. So this is when I was 14, through 14 to 18. And so that was kind of a very formative part of my development, seeing him go through all the kind of brain and physical and mental challenges that he was going through um, and caring for him. I kind of really had that strong interest in mental health and brain development and the areas of the brain and kind of thinking about um, kind of the manifestation of the tumor on his on his health and behavior so it was actually very very sad but also very fascinating and probably without that without going through that I wouldn't have gone to university to study psychology so that was kind of the real kind of reason for me having that strong interest yeah it's it's interesting because it makes me think about sometimes when we're confronted with these elements or these kind of junctions in life you know, it makes me think about the the old debate, which obviously goes into neuroscience between free will and not free will, and about yeah. what what pushes on us pushes us on these on these different paths and and different areas to explore. So, yeah, it's quite interesting that we we get confronted with something, and all of a sudden it becomes a fascination. You know, yeah, because that's that's how I got into a well, in terms of a similar thing, I I actually was working in a, a project management area after being in health and safety, and it was basically a combination of people couldn't agree on a fatigue policy and I was asked to facilitate a workshop for three hours and uh here I am like you know 15 years later <laughs> you know a whole, new, a whole career now. and as I, I've said many times in this podcast and other people and I think you're probably the same Nicola 
I don't think we all sat at school chewing a pencil looking out the window and going someday I'm going to be a sleep scientist or a chronobiologist that's my dream no exactly it seems to me that all of the decisions that I've made in my in, in my life to get to where I am have always not been made for me but have been presented to me mm. so the kind of the, the paths that I've gone down have been because of some sort of event so the you know the sad story of, of my dad providing that, in, that interest in psychology going down that route and then catastrophic worry from family members no surprise with that really and then having a conversation with Alice so it's all, it's all these you know it's just kind of the path has sort of just occurred I don't really feel as I've made a conscious decision as to this is what I'm going to do I just end, have ended up the, where I am now hmm. are you familiar with a guy called Ian McGilchrist the name rings a bell but I don't know he's a Scottish he's a Scottish well I think he's Scottish his name would 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 but he sounds like a very posh English guy and I, I believe he did uh, classics at either Oxford or Cambridge I think at Oxford he did classics but then went back and trained as a psychiatrist and now he's an author and he's probably he must be in his mid-60s um Ian McGilchrist is a very interesting character I, I'd um I'd highly recommend like looking him up on YouTube, watch some of his lectures, but he talks about, he's got two books out at the moment, which are about, I don't know, over 2000 pages together called The Matter With Things. And he's written a book before called The Master and His Emissary about like left and right brain thinking. But The Matter mm-hmm. With Things really focuses on, um, you know, not just the the kind of scientific materialist view that we have of the world in terms of going through very kind of logical approach to everything, but also kind of bringing in, nearly to some effect I would describe like the spirituality or like the things happen in life that are kind of weird and wonderful, this connectivity and there's more meaning in the world. And um, he often sums it up as like the, the Tao Te Ching with the, with the yin yang symbol, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's, um, that's what comes to mind when you talk about, you know, that kind of pathway through, it's like you kind of ebb and flow from different things and different things happen for certain reasons and whether they're, or you're scripted or not scripted and you know you kind of just get hit it's like a, i often say it's like a kind of a bumper car you hit off the wall and you go down different paths yeah. but you know pr- nobody can really predict where you're going to go no it's exactly and that's what's so exciting and it's only really now that i've, I've in, in what i'm doing now which I'm, I'm sure we'll get on to a bit later on but every day something changes and so every day i kind of wake up with sort of a plan of what my day is going to look like but by the end of the day Loads of new things may have come in, loads of new opportunities have presented, and they're going to offer me all of these potential other paths that I'm going to go down. So I think we should all kind of look at every day with that sort of excitement of, oh, anything can change. I mean, sometimes bad things can happen, but hopefully, you know, we'll be able to work with those bad things to make it positive. Yeah, I think Carl Sagan spoke about that, like in science, you know, you have to have that awe and wonder every day. And yeah, people often kind of, you know, we'll tend to go off. There was philosophy, then religion, and then we had science and science just in a, you know, kind of a, uh, what would you say, like a materialistic, uh, formalized way of philosophy. But in actual fact, the more I do science, the more I'm actually engaged in philosophy because philosophy allows us to ask those big questions, allows us to have that awe and wonder. Yeah. And to your point, allows us to wake up and go, wow, there's going to be something completely new today. So yeah, exactly. They're, they're actually hand in hand. They're not separate. But I think we should actually start with what you're doing now, Nicola, and then kind of reverse engineer into uh, some of the stuff you've done, because you do have a new business. You've just recently started up, which has a very lofty title, which sounds like it's global domination, Sleep Universal. 
Sleep so Universal, you, that's tell, right. Tell, tell us about Sleep Universal. I thought this was a this is a bold name. Why 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 Sleep Universal and what are you doing here at Sleep Universal? So so I left academia in September to pursue um working in industry. And so Sleep Universal is a sleep science research consultancy company. And it has four different services. And so the main service, which I'm really trying to promote and which I kind of feel is the kind of the nuts and bolts of the company is providing research organizations with expertise in sleep and circadian science and sleep medicine. So I've got extensive experience in um, understanding the literature around sleep medicine from all different, all of the kind of sleep disorders that we classify in the international classification of sleep disorders, the ICSD, kind of every sleep clinician's Bible. So I've got a, a huge background in, in that area. So providing research organizations, the expertise in the literature, in current evidence-based um, diagnostic techniques and evidence-based therapeutics, um, big data. So as I said earlier, statistics is a huge passion of mine. So being able to couple my love of statistics and love of big data with what I know about sleep science is a huge part of what I do as well. So providing organizations with the skills in, in big data analysis of any sleep and circadian uh, circadian rhythm data points. So it could be wearable data, it could be polysomnography, it could be actigraphy, could be subjective measures, you know, anything and everything that we use, all of our sleep medicine and circadian rhythm toolkits that we use to assess sleep. Um, yeah, providing analytics, big data analytics. So that's kind of kind of the nuts and bolts of what we do. Protocol development, designing new trials, um, clinical trial management. So anything and everything research related that companies currently don't have. So it might be that a new company wants to test a product or trial a product, or they've got data from from I don't know from some sort of organisation that they just they they need the sleep and the statistical and analytics. So that's a huge part of it. Another part of it is corporate education. So I've been working at, at the University of Oxford. My role there was to, uh, I was a lecturer in sleep medicine where I developed the Oxford online programme in sleep medicine. And if anyone is really interested in hearing more about that programme, I know they have a taster session on later today, I think. Um, so, so check out check out that, they do short courses, but it was also primarily a, a master's programme and a postgraduate diploma. The aim of that was to educate health professionals in the diagnosis, assessment and management using evidence-based techniques of every sleep disturbance disorder that you can, that you can imagine That's, that is in the ICSD3 and, and beyond and talking about sleep in specialist populations and paediatrics. It's a very comprehensive program. <laughs> so yeah, so that's um, the education side of things. But so through Sleep Universal, the corporate talks that I, I can I cover are bespoke talks. So organizations, I'm sure that you're aware a lot of organizations now are wanting to really promote the sleep and well-being of their employees. And they're bringing in sleep specialists like me. There are lots of others out there. Um, to educate their, their employees on how to really make the best of their sleep for optimum performance and for optimum health. Another part of my company is media stuff. So that's kind of goes, goes by the by with being a scientist, reaching yeah. out to the media. And then finally, sleep optimization training for subclinical sleep problems. So I'm not a therapist. I don't have a clinical background. I have a very academic and scientific background, but using that knowledge 
I am I'm starting to develop an area in my business where I'll be able to help in individuals, not with sleep disorders as such, but help individuals optimize their sleep for optimum performance. Yeah, and direct them then towards the, the, the relevant services or specialists where exactly. needed as well. Because I think sometimes in this world, you know, people get completely discombobulated about all the different pathways they are, or how to diagnose sleep apnea, for example, or if they have jet lag or the like I get people sent to me, they've had jet lag for two years. I'm like, it's just not, it's fundamentally not possible, you know? Oh no, I did. I went, I went on a trip two years ago. I'm still over like, and, or the best one was um, a guy said because he was born in Scotland, but lived in Australia, he had jet lag for the rest of his life. <laughs> so like just those basic things sometimes for people. And it's funny, like, but, you know, I think it's just providing people with the education and, and, and showing them the directions of where they can go because it can get quite messy. And then people can spend yeah. a lot of time and a lot of money and um and, and get the wrong advice sometimes and, I, and i'm glad to see actually people like yourself nicola cross over from academia into these fields um because i think one like you said it's a growing area and you know i got in around the same time as you 2007 2008 in, in industry and then and the same thing as well there was hardly any stuff and it's similar mm-hmm. like with sleep sleep and performance and athletics there's it's like a kind of a hockey stick a ramp only since 2010 and I think the problem with that is that in such an area that's so new and um, where we still have lots to discover, it opens up to lots of charlatans and cowboys and we have lots of them out yeah. there giving talks or providing advice or giving information. So I always think it's great to see people who've had like the proper academic training, whether it be to the degree or PhD level, to come out and start bringing that into the world because um, the more people, the merrier are doing it as far as I'm concerned and, and you know, I want to promote that. It's, it's absolutely great because... I can't stand when I see businesses getting taken for a ride or individuals and, um, no. you know, getting sold a lemon. It absolutely infuriates me because I think it makes us all look, you know, a bit silly as well. Then we all get tired with the same brush. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's great. So they're, they're great services. Um, yeah. You talk a lot about the data stuff there. Um, it's interesting because I don't come across too many sleep scientists slash chronobiologists are into data. Is it, no, exactly. You, so that's kind of my big niche yeah, is that we, there's, we, there's a lot of data out there as well. Yeah. A lot of companies are routinely collecting data and they haven't got the analytical tools or the department in, in small companies to do that. So it's great that I can kind of provide that service. And I don't think there are any other sleep scientists that are big data I, I, I don't scientists think so. as well. I think it's only like a few biostatisticians that kind of dabble around a little bit, but don't really. So do you, do you write your own code or do you use like existing programs like SPSS or do you write your own stuff or do you use all? I use my own code. So I use R and I use um, uh, SQL, SQL, others, others call it, I call it SQL, other people yeah. call it SQL um, or SPSS or Stata. Primarily R at the moment because it's so super fun writing code and running code and optimizing it and creating machine learning algorithms. It's super fun. <laughs> My best I'm days are sitting at a date with a data set and running some machine learning algorithms to do predictive modeling. It's so fun. You see, Nicola, I'm so glad people like you exist because I would absolutely go insane. <laughs> <laughs> I get so frustrated trying to, I tried to learn it twice and I just got so frustrated. I think I need a lot of time, a lot of patience, and a lot of space. I'm just way too busy to give it the time to learn it for the learning curve. I think I would need to carve out some time, but I do really enjoy statistics. I, I actually was surprised how much I liked it on my, on my PhD. And um, I still quite do quite like looking at the numbers and I'm infantile in my approach still, but I do quite like it. 
Um, yeah. So it's it's good that people like you exist. So um, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll make a note to, to come to you anymore if we have any big data to look at. Exactly. <laughs> Send all your data my way, and I'll run some analysis on it. Do you want to hear my statistical joke? I would love a statistics joke. Mr. And I wrote I wrote this joke. Nobody has written okay, this joke because oh I had a friend that did a master's in data science, and he goes, "That is a great joke. You should uh, trademark that." Mr. X walks into a nightclub. The barman, the, the bouncer says, "You're barred." Mr. X says, "That's me." <laughs> That's actually a very good joke. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife looks at me and goes, "Don't tell that joke again." And I said, "What?" I, I, I like and, it. And I go, "Why?" Two out of three people don't believe in statistics anyway. <laughs> Yes, more dad jokes here every week. Um, so with Sleep Universal, this is obviously a very new business. Um, and you've obviously done it on the back of the pandemic. That's a quite a bold uh, move to make. Did the pandemic give you the time to reflect to do this? Or, you know, was it the it impetus did. to I, it or was it just a timing issue? Um, well, it was partly the pandemic, partly wanting work-life balance um, and wanting to delve into something else. So I think I'd kind of got everything out of academia that I wanted to get out of it. And I didn't really see myself wanting to go down the route where I'll be writing grants after grants, you know, getting one out of 10 accepted, being short-term projects. Yeah. And I didn't really see that that was what I wanted to do. Always trying to, you know, write, spend lots of time writing grants and, and, and not actually doing. And then with the teaching side of things, I've been teaching for a good 10 years. So prior to working at Oxford, I was a lecturer, senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Northumbria up in Newcastle, the north northeast of England. I was working in a sleep lab up there with Professor Jason Ellis. Party who, town. Yeah, party town. Newcastle's <laughs> a wonderful place, wonderful place. And so we're working at the Northumbria Centre for Sleep Research. So Jason had set up from scratch a wonderful two-bedroom sleep lab up in Newcastle. Um, so I worked there for five years, training uh, undergraduate psychology students around a module in sleep and circadian rhythms. So a lot of teaching, but also a lot of research. We had a good bunch of PhD students up there running really fascinating projects in sleep and circadian science. Um, and that wasn't the question, was it? So I'm kind of going a little bit of a detour around <laughs> to answering this question. <laughs> Take your time. This, this, I, anyway. was gonna, I, was, I was gonna call this short tangents actually originally. Tangents, <laughs> a podcast on sleep. <laughs> we eventually get to talking about sleep. Anyway, so I was up there for five years or so. So that, that's what I was getting at. I've been teaching for 10 years and I kind of thought, you know, it's, I love doing the teaching, but rather than teaching people how to do, I want to be doing. And mm. rather than writing grant applications to want to eventually be doing something, I want to be doing it now. So that's kind of why I thought, right, the only way to do this is to go into industry because academia can be slow and that's not what industry is like industry is very fast paced so I had this idea to set up sleep universal probably a couple of years ago um so it was around this around the the start of the pandemic where oh god yeah so it was around this sort of time because I was in the throes of working full-time at home and trying to teach my five-year-old at the time so she's now seven at the beginning of the pandemic homeschooling homeschooling and working almost killed me <laughs> as I'm sure it did for most parents and at that time I thought I just need the flexibility to be able to work for myself yeah so I think it probably was that sort of the pandemic that sort of initiated these ideas in my head that I can't do this if we go into another lockdown again I don't think that's ever going to happen again 
But if we did, Monkey I would pox. just have to give up my job. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Monkey we have quite a few coming. cases in the UK of monkeypox, so <laughs> I'm keeping myself indoors away from anybody. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I am not hanging out with any monkeys on the weekend. I, that, 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 I'm finished with that. I used to do it. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> I'm just oh, going to hang out with clowns from now on. Just clowns. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so wanting, wanting to have that flexibility to control my time, I think. And so set up. So I had these ideas to set up... Um, set up Sleep Universal last year. Um, but before I did, I had a short stint in industry where I worked as a, as a senior data scientist for a global health data science company, which gave me lots of good experience that kind of quenched my thirst for big data. But then during that time, I kind of thought, you know what, I really need to be focusing on sleep because that's my bread and butter. I can really help people. And so I merged the two. So yeah. data science and, and sleep science. So it's really nice now that every day I get to wake up with excitement knowing or not knowing what's going to happen, how great it's going to be, or, you know, what other kind of obstacles are going to, or challenges are going to come my way. But also I know that I'm doing sleep science and data science. So mm. what more could a girl ask for? Yeah. And he, it's interesting because what you've touched on there is a number of reasons why I never went into academia. And, you know, people in academia often said to me, how do you put up with like the, the stress of industry, not knowing where your money's coming from? I'm like, it's the same as academia. You never know it if you're going to get a grant. And I've seen numerous people not get grants or not get funded and they lose their job. That to me is yep. more stressful because mm -hmm. there's a lot of other factors that go into play. Are you liked? Are you in a certain group? Are you part of a lab? Like maybe the lab isn't liked, you know, like, but there's a whole host of other things that are outside your control. Whereas in industry, you do a good job. People come back to you. You do a good yep. job. People spread the message because industry... Obviously, there's games and everything, but, you know, and nepotism and favoritism. But if you deliver and you get a reputation, you're asked back and you just keep doing it and you keep delivering and you make money off that. And you have heaps less administration running your own business compared to working at a university because, like what you said, grants, committees, all that, teaching plus research. People have yeah. this idealistic. It's really interesting talking to people who don't under, have never worked in or around research because I think that if you're an academic or when you get a PhD that the government kind of gives you some a lot of job at the university and then they just pump you full of money every year and they and all they say to you and all the, and, and and your only thing is you have to publish a certain amount of papers every year so and and then treat you like and then the public treats you like some sort of free consultancy I'm like because I've had people come to me for industry problems and they go oh well I'm not, I'm not paying that we thought it was going to be less than that so I'll just go to the university and then they go to the university and the university will go no, we don't do that. And if we did, it's going to be X amount. And then it'll come mm -hmm. back to me and go, well, the university is going to charge us more for because of administration costs. And I'm like, oh God, people, yeah. People are like, have no idea about how, how this sits like in the, in the framework of society. So yeah. Anyway, let's let's talk about your research, Nicola, because there's heaps of stuff. We could we could probably go on a rabbit hole about academia for two days. We um, could. You do have you have lots of publications. So I think, you know, in terms of establishing credibility straight away, you've got over 50 publications and um, all of your publications are not only available on your website, but all over PubMed as well. And uh, I went through some of them today <clears throat> and before, and I'm going to just jump in at any, any particular point here because they're so wild and wonderful that I've never really come across some of this research. So I'm really interested to ask you lots of questions. There's three things that keep coming up in your papers, particularly from the, we'll say the first half of your career. Three words, and I wonder if you could describe them for myself and the listeners to clarify them. Phenotypes, chronotypes, and diurnal preferences. 
because they're often used and I find that sometimes we talk about them but can't really clarify them. <laughs> so we'll start with maybe phenotype. What's a phenotype? A measurable entity. So uh, a, a, you, could, you could supplement the, the word for, or substitute, sorry, substitute the word for trait. So it could something measurable. So in my research, so a lot of a lot of the first part of my career started in my PhD with Alice, and it was looking at the genetic and environmental factors implicated in sleep quality and chronotype. We'll get onto chronotype in a minute. Um, and so what we do in quantitative genetics is carve up a phenotype, so a trait such as sleep qualities, that was the phenotype of interest or chronotype as the phenotype of interest, and look to see what amount of variability in the general population for that trait, phenotype, is accounted for by genetic and environmental factors. So you've probably seen a lot of those words come up in your PubMed search for my papers as genetic and environment stuff. So phenotype is a measurable trait. So would it be fair to say that with phenotypes for sleep, you could say there was good sleepers and bad sleepers? Yes, depending on the measure that you're using. So I, I, I did notice, and this is probably a leading question, you did look at the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. Could you use yeah. that then to categorize people into poor, moderate, and good sleepers? Poor a, and good. I poor wouldn't and say good. moderate. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, we call it the PISCI, PSQI. I've never heard that. The PISCI. You've never, we call it the PISCI. I'm going to use that pisky. I like Dan Bicey, the author, the author of the pisky called it the pisky. And actually, it was the first time I heard it called the pisky was when Dan said it. So I thought, okay, well, it must be that then. That must be the term that he wants us to use. So yeah, so the pisky, that's a very good, well-validated measure of sleep quality. It has a cutoff point, a validated cutoff point in multiple populations to be able to accurately determine good versus poor sleep quality um, based on the previous month. So it has a time sensitivity of a month, month duration. Yeah, so it's kind of an, an average, your, your own subjective perception of your sleep quality over the past month. Okay. And so that would be a phenotype, a good sleeper and a bad sleeper. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So what about chronotype? So chronotype is the your internal biological clock. So whether you're a morning type or an evening type. So chrono relating to time and type type morning yeah, yeah. or evening um, but it's also um synonymous with diurnal preference well i say that i i guess you could probably say that diurnal preference is your own subjective perception of the optimum time for wake and sleep so i would i would say that my diurnal preference is is as a morning type i'm, I'm i would probably say a good few years ago as an extreme morning type but now I'm kind of verging into the normal, normal bell curve of, of morningness and eveningness. So my normal type, so my morning time, this is my optimum time. So I might not come across as this being my optimum time right now, but this is my optimum. So chronotype then, is it the same? I would say that chronotype is more of a biologically ingrained diurnal preference. And so the ways that we would measure chronotype, there are certain, there are slightly different measures. Sometimes they're all kind of bunched together as measuring the same thing, but I, th I would argue that they're probably not. So chronotype, I would say, would be best measured with the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire, which is it's very similar to the way that we measure diurnal preference. Diurnal preference would measure with the morningness, eveningness questionnaire by Horn and Ostberg. So we've got these two measures. There's a lot of overlap in both of them, but the MCTQ, so the Munich 
chronotype questionnaire has slightly different questions. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head how we would differentiate these. So you'll put me on the spot here with these, but I would say it's more of a measure of your biologically ingrained rhythm, whereas diurnal preference is more your preference, your perceptions. Yeah, so one would be like nearly endogenous, like how you would operate independent of having a brain nearly, <laughs> like an organism that didn't think and the other then would be like, well, I prefer to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's obviously other ways then to measure that more objectively, isn't there then? Like, what, you know, um, you know, body temperature, yeah, uh, lightly, exactly. light exposure, so I mean, on. It, ideally, if we want, would want to get a measure of somebody's, the timing of somebody's biological clock, we would want to take advantage of three um, circadian phase markers. So body temperature. So we know that body temperature has a, a predictable fluctuation across the 24 hour day. We have peaks and troughs that are in a very predictable set timing. So we have our, for, 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 us, for an individual who fits into kind of the normal bell curve of being an intermediate, no, not extreme morning, not extreme evening, just somebody who kind of fits in with the normal nine to yeah. five work pattern probably wakes up around seven goes to bed around 10 half past so it's kind of your typical intermediate no extreme type um and so for that sort of individual we would expect there to be a, a morning rise in body temperature probably hitting your peak warm um warm, the warmest body temperature probably around about i don't know sometime in the in the late morning or, or early afternoon. And then we would have the lowest time of body temperature, usually around about 4 a.m. So we could plot somebody's core body temperature over the course of a 24 hour period and look for the timing of the peaks and troughs. But the other circadian phase markers, one would be melatonin. So we would look to see when your, your DILMO, dim light melatonin onset, when that occurs. So typically, we, we start to see melatonin. So melatonin is a hormone of darkness. It readies the brain for sleep. It makes us feel sleepy. It's inhibited by bright light and it's secreted in darkness or when the, when the light levels get low. So in order to capture somebody's onset, we would want to start taking a measure of melatonin that can be either through saliva or it can be through urine assessment. And we'd start taking samples say every half an hour from around about I don't know 6 p.m probably in four hours leading up to the habitual bedtime so if somebody has a habitual bedtime at 10 p.m want to start sampling around 6 p.m and see when we start to see melatonin secreted um another circadian phase marker could be cortisol so we see predictable patterns in peaks and troughs of cortisol and cortisol is starts to rise in the, in the morning, we have a particular response to waking called the cortisol awakening response, the CAR, the C-A-R. And so after our consolidated period of nighttime sleep, we start to see cortisol secretion rise and rise and rise. And it's sort of thought to prepare us for the stresses that occur during the waking day. Um, levels of cortisol then start to tail off and should be relatively low during the nighttime. So if we were to take those three measures, obviously this is quite laborious to do for an individual, but ideally if we wanted to get a measure of somebody's endogenous circadian rhythm, we could then work out through all of those measurements whereabouts they are at any given time point in their circadian phase. Yeah, this is like, um, you're reminding me of some of the work um, that Sean Kane is doing. I don't know if you know Sean Kane at Monash University. He's doing lots of stuff no. on light. On light. He used to be at Harvard um, 
previously. Um, he's from Nova Scotia and Canada originally, but he's in Monash now. And he's been on the podcast before. And uh, on our Sleep for Performance seminar, which is on June 21st, which I think by the time this episode gets released will be out, Sean is actually doing a guest talk in session two of that on light, which is quite interesting because using markers of light exposure, they can, he can basically characterize your your chronotype and your light sensitivity as well, because obviously that's another mm-hmm. issue as well. Okay, that's that's um, excellent. So we've got phenotypes, chronotypes, and diurnal preferences. The other, the other one as well, Nicola, I've been talking about recently is um, when I spoke to Miriam Jude about this, she's in, in Vancouver and she's from Luxembourg originally. I think she did her PhD with Till Ronenberg or Ronenberg. Oh, yeah. Um, and Miriam um, has an interest in this type of work. She's done some stuff, I think, with Kenna Wright before all Colorado. Mm-hmm. But um, this this area as well, like obviously there's the your chronotype, your diurnal preferences, and then there's social jet lag, which Miriam yeah. does some work in, which is basically like, you know, irregular type of sleep and wake times. But the other one I've been kind of talking about recently or thinking about is um, an enforced chronotype. I'd be interested to know what you think about this. So we got chronotypes. So let's say, as you said, there's like early morning people who are obviously often referred to as larks, get up early and go to bed early. You got the intermediates, which I often call just a dove, and then the owl chronotype at night. So let's say you're endogenously um, a dove chronotype, but your preference or your diurnal preference is to get up early and to do exercise and to get go to work. But you have an enforced chronotype because of you know your work life, your work schedule, which makes you work more as an owl. That's something I know it's kind of. You, you might say it's shift work disorder mm-hmm. using like Laura Barger's questionnaire. But I think that some people might necessarily be shift, sh- might have shift work disorder, but they might have an issue with like an enforced chronotype. Is that something like that's, that's worth considering or is, am I just crazy? Well, I think what you're talking about there is social jet lag. So, so, so with so, social jet lag can be defined as a misalignment between your social clocks and your biological clock. So that is the typical case of an evening type who has to get up early in the morning or, or works the nine till five. But typically, if they were to sleep on their own regular rhythm where they were you know, their endogenous rhythm, they would probably wouldn't be waking up until 10, 11 a.m. and staying awake probably until one or two a.m. And that doesn't fit in with the nine till five. So that's where we would see social jet lag. And with social jet lag, we would see all of the hallmarks of jet lag physiologically. So we do see, um, you know, increased hunger. We do see gastrointestinal symptoms, respiratory symptoms, you know, the whole physiological, every physiological system reacts to jet lag because we have a master circadian clock, but also this, this biological clock sends rhythms to every cell in our body to make sure that all of our physiological processes are recurring at the appropriate time for that particular function and so when we have this misalignment between our clocks all of our physiological rhythms can mess up and that's when we start to feel symptomatic Um, and if we maintain that for far too long that's obviously going to impact on our health um, and performance and safety and mood and cognition and yeah so impact every part of our lives Mm. so is your question then is it possible to entrain your chronotype to be a different type is that what you're asking no i suppose what um it's interesting you say maybe that's social jet lag i suppose that's making me now think about teasing social jet lag apart into two parts because part of social jet lag may be behavioral based Mm -hmm. so it's within your control like it's it's your behaviors classic one is 
you know, what, what we probably did when we were younger would be sleep, you know, a regular Monday to Thursday and go then party Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, but go to bed at like 5 a.m. and sleep until 2 a.m. and get up mm. and do it all over again. That, that to me would be like a social jet lag. But then there's an enforced element of social jet lag, which you can't control, which is shift work, but you don't have shift work disorder. So it's like nearly social jet lag, but two parts. One is behavioral based and one is enforced. I see what you mean. I would still yeah. call them both social jet lag. Okay. I don't think they're two separate separate entities. It's just whether you have decided to um, enforce that on yourself through your personal choice or whether it's dictated to by your work or family commitments or, you know, yeah. something that is less within your control. But I would I would see. I think that that they would both be the same social social jet lag. They, the outcome is the same. Yeah, the outcome is the same. I think it's just looking at classification or something. Yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about, just been talking to lots of people recently and doing some education sessions in some high-risk industries about, about this. But anyway, it's, um, yeah, maybe I need to talk to more people about it. Maybe I'm just crazy. <laughs> Who knows? Um, your, your, some of your papers actually looked at these, um, uh, like one paper here, uh, associations between diurnal preferences, sleep quality, so we've, we've characterized or described what diurnal preferences are and sleep quality using the, the pisky, as we call it now. I like, I like the pisky. Yeah, it sounds like it should be a swear word. And externalizing behaviors, a behavioral genetic analysis. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about this paper? Because this is something I've never really read about or seen about. And, and if you could classify the external behaviors as well and tell us about this experiment, because it's quite, it's quite interesting. Yeah, so a lot of, a lot of my work comes from um, utilizing a big twin sample. Um, so we, we used a twin sample called G1219, which originated from King's College in London and lots of- Just, um, just, just to clarify, when we're talking about twins, we're talking about actually like two siblings, like two sisters, two brothers, a brother and a sister. Is that what you're talking about? No, we're talking about, so identical twins yeah. and non-identical twins. Yeah. 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 Okay. Like twins. human, human twins, human twins. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Just in and case so there was you... some sort of code for lab in a Petri dish and people were like, what are they talking about? Oh, <laughs> no, no. All of, all of my, a lot, a lot, I was going to say all, but the majority of my work, actually, yes, all of my work is humans. Okay. Yeah. Sure so we that. have, <laughs> yeah, I'm not an animal, animal scientist. So all of our, uh, we, have, we have a lot of data on twin samples. So monozygotic identical twins and dizygotic um, non-identical twins, as well as some, some families that also had siblings. And we had data collected on them over the course of five years, started when they were 12 years old, right through to when they were, um, well, some of them started at 12, some of them started at 19, and we followed them up for five, five time points. And so we had a lot of, a lot of data that we, we took so we could do some longitudinal analyses and we had lots of different phenotypes in there so we had sleep phenotypes we had other markers of of mental health we had family situation we had life stressors we had parental questionnaires so we could use all of that data to kind of get a picture of the genetic factors that are involved in all of these phenotypes and the environmental factors that are involved so the paper that you're talking about is looking at the overlap between sleep quality diurnal preference and externalizing behaviors and what we mean by externalizing behaviors is things like rule breaking um, and delinquency and so because a lot of this the data was in teenagers we were able to look at when they were being particularly naughty um, yeah, and yeah but they... okay, okay. I, I want to stop here. This is this is great. Like, so what's the definition of naughty? Because my wife says to me, "Oh, you shouldn't have done that. That's so bad." And I'm like, "That's nothing. 
Like you should see what I'm capable of. <laughs> so how would you, how would you, how do you classify that? Because some adults would think like, you know, their, their, their um, kid like spitting on the street was disgusting where other people might puke and think it's fine. Like, so how would you distinguish between the oh, behavior? I don't know how you would distinguish between those two types of things. And in fact, the questionnaire that I measured did not measure those types of things. <laughs> so I think you need a separate questionnaire. <laughs> Well, actually, so I, I say naughty, bit tongue in cheek. It's it's more things that are are breaking rules, being disruptive, um, but also aggressive type behaviours. And I can't remember the questions now. I'd have to go back and have a look at the types of questions. But it, it essentially allow, allows us to partition um, behaviours into rule breaking mm. or aggression. And so a lot of a lot of the sample would measure very very low on those. A lot of a lot of our sample were actually very well-behaved, well-rounded kids. Um, but anyway, so what that paper was looking at is, is there an association between those that are poor sleepers and, and likelihood of externalising behaviours, so aggression and rule-breaking, which I can't remember the results off the top of my head, but I think we, well, we definitely found an association between all three. And there was also a genetic overlap between all three. So what we mean by genetic overlap is that the genes that predict the variability in one phenotype are shared with those that predict the other. And so we found genetic overlap between all three of these variables, suggesting that to some extent, there are some shared pathways. And so like the, the, the likely pathways, if we're looking at the association between sleep quality and diurnal preference, then it's likely that the pathways that are shared genetically are those that are implicated in um, sleep, wake and, and arousal systems. So the monoamines. So we know that the monoaminergic system is involved in um, the switch between wake and sleep. So we've got serotonin, we've got histamine, um, so we've got noradrenaline, so all of these um, uh, monoamines are implicated but also we have clock genes so there's a whole circadian system of clock genes that regulate the timing of sleep and wake and so there's overlap there and we actually then took this into molecular genetic analysis we've got dna from our sample of twins and we looked at candidate genes so all of the genetic work that i've done most of the genetic work that i've done is either quantitative genetics or candidate gene studies so what we mean by candidate gene is where we have a hypothesis about what particular molecular system might be involved. So we looked at the monoaminergic system and we looked at circadian rhythm genes and looked to see whether they predicted. I'm giggling. I tell you why I'm giggling. I'm going to be my wife walking back from a walk and she's doing that thing outside my window of my office where she's pretending she's walking down steps into a basement. And so she made me Brilliant. laugh. And then she just looked in the window and made me laugh. Once you're, once you're explaining something really important. So yeah, she she made me <laughs> laugh. And then did a big cheeky grin in, in the window, trying to make me laugh on the podcast. She knew I was doing this. So yeah, I, I didn't want to, sorry. I did my best to hold it in, but I couldn't. She was you doing it. You couldn't, that. you could say yeah. it. If only the listeners could see the little rise in your your <laughs> grin on your face. <laughs> I couldn't help her. She did it. Yeah. So she and then she says to me, don't ever talk about me on the podcast. Well, tough luck. You put yourself in now. So exactly. yeah, she did down some steps. So with this, there's no steps there. She's just pretending. You know, it's like that stupid dad joke she's doing. And this, so <laughs> coming back to it, she's gone now. And um, the questionnaires, like you said, about the diurnal preference, sleep quality and these external behaviors. Was there any relationship between say poor sleep 
in the in the quality diurnal preferences and bad behavior. So was it basically like if you had poor sleep quality, you stayed up really late that you had really bad behavior, like spitting on the street? Was that the case, or yeah. did you find that? I'm not going to say that spitting on the street was one of them, but yeah, no, we did. Do we did see an association? I'm just going to have to look at that now and see. I've got to write. I've got. I've got. I've, I've got, have got, you got it here? here. Yeah, I'll just share it. Here. I haven't so, read this paper for about ten years. No, it's not. It's <laughs> it, it's not worth it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just joking. Here, it's this. This is the abstract. There. Oh, you got it up already. Yeah. Let's have a look. Um, so, preference for eveningness and poor sleep quality were associated with greater externalizing symptoms. So, we've got a correlation of 0.28 between poor sleep quality and externalizing. So, a moderate correlation. So, the poorer the individual sleep quality, the more likely they were to um, experience externalizing symptoms, such as aggression and rule breaking. And interestingly. Oh, sorry, that's the other way around. So eveningness, so a preference for eveningness had, had this more moderate correlation of 0.28 and poor sleep quality had a slightly bigger correlation of 0.3. So they're both moderate, um, moderately associated with externalizing. So the poorer your sleep is and the more, the, the greater the tendency towards eveningness, the mm. more likely you, you are to experience externalizing. And let me just have a look at the genetic overlap on that. So a total of 18% of the genetic influences on externalizing were shared with diurnal preference and sleep quality. And an additional 14% shared with sleep quality alone, which suggests then that the genetic factors that are involved in sleep quality share a greater genetic component with externalizing than with diurnal preference. So it would suggest that it's not it, there's a small contribution potentially of clock genes, but a greater contribution of the genes that are involved in sleep quality. Hmm. Very interesting. This is, uh, yeah, this is like, like I said, it's completely new for me to look at this sort of in, in this area. So it's fascinating to, to look at this work because uh, I haven't been exposed to it and it's not an area I'm obviously very well educated in. So this is, uh, this is, uh, this is great. This is really interesting. I do have more questions on the, on this sort of work, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep uh, throwing up, and I've got lots of the abstracts here, so we can we can obviously maybe pull them up as we talk about each paper if that's helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let, let's let's keep on this topic here of um um. Oh, actually, before we move on to this next paper, have you come across the um adverse child experiences um questionnaire? You just made me think uh, about yes. when you were yeah. You just made me yeah. think about when you were talking about um you know, the kids spitting on the street, to use my example, or the bad behaviors. Um, because adverse child experience health outcomes, um, outcomes are associated with lots of health implications. Yeah. And actually, I think I did an audio abstract a few years ago, looking at the ACE on sleep. And that's obviously mm -hmm. the more childhood experiences um, that they have, the worse the sleep is, even true to like in their 60s and 70s. And yes. basically on the ACE, on the ACE um, scoring, I think it's out of nine or 10, if my memory serves me right, but basically the higher you go on that, everything is associated with like, you know, you die, if you score like nine, you're going to like die earlier, more trauma, you won't be educated, you won't have any money, it might be a drug and have drug and alcohol abuse problems and substance abuse and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that something that you've, you've looked at yourself in terms of um, your background with psychology and relationship with sleep and with these phenotypes and diurnal preferences? Is that something that's come in with like existing trauma from the past or... Um, Poor, yeah. poor environments yeah so one one of my papers we looked at negative life events so this is very similar to what what you're talking about here with the adverse childhood experiences now in the paper that i run 
we looked at so the so negative life events can be measured with with lots of different types of scales i can't remember the one that we use now but it was looking at a hundred different events and and um counting them up to see how many an individual had experienced during their lifetime so at any time point in their life bearing in mind that our sample were aged potentially into their early 20s so it wasn't just about um, about early life but in that study we did show that the, the individuals that had experienced a greater number of negative life events were more likely to experience poor sleep quality mm. and also we partitioned that into genetics so we wanted to see are the genetic factors that are involved in sleep quality also shared with those that are implicated with negative life events now you might think that a lot of negative life events are purely out of your control and so in this study we partitioned those into dependent life events and what we mean by dependent life events are ones where you've made a conscious decision about that event so it could be getting married I mean some people might <laughs> you might think that's a positive experience hopefully for the majority of people it's a, it is a positive experience but it comes with a lot of stress no comment. getting married can be very <laughs> stressful or no other, other <laughs> dependent life events would be divorce obviously in this sample we're talking about teenagers going through to early early adulthood so these these life events are not typically um, endorsed by this sample but there are other dependent life events such as dropping out of school dropping out of, yeah. of university so these are ones where a conscious decision has been made and then we have independent negative life events this is more more likely to be something like an illness or death of a family member or you know ones where it's largely out of our control and then we look to see whether there is genetic overlap between the sleep phenotype and the dependent life events. So no surprise then that the independent life events are not genetically correlated with, with sleep, but we did, did find that there was genetic correlations between the dependent life events. But so what this study is, is not doing is looking at the, the kind of time course. It's not looking at cause and effect. So the associations here are cross-sectional. Um, and so we're not able to tease apart, you know, whether, a particular event at time point A predicts poor sleep quality later on. So that's not what this paper is looking at. But Alice, Alice Gregory has done lots of research where she's looked at other samples, not necessarily twin samples, but looking at um, life events that occur in childhood. So childhood maltreatment, family chaos, um, family disruption, and looking at whether that predicts sleep later on and we actually do see that independent of lots of other confounders childhood maltreatment predicts insomnia in adulthood and possibly mm. further on down the line and there's a lot of research looking at that as as well now and looking at um at that that kind of the chronicity of that so it it can have very long-term uh uh yeah long-term uh, predicts long-term insomnia in yeah, later life that's really interesting. And this is the paper here, isn't it, that I've shared, Dependent Negative Life Events. This is the paper you just discussed. Is this yes, the right one? exactly. Yeah. 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 And that was published in Sleep Medicine. Yeah, in 2011. It's a very good journal. So, yeah, it's a very good yeah. journal. Yeah, this is um, this is really interesting, yeah. And again, you got their twins and non-twin siblings, so 1,500 mm -hmm. people in a, it's a very It's a massive sample. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So, again, it's that same message, like, with the AS, isn't it, is that, basically the more childhood trauma or events or negative impact the worse the sleep is going to be not only then but into the future as well so you're yeah. really setting people up for for poor sleep this is also interesting because it makes me think about some other stuff i've been looking at in terms of uh, shift work and shift work environments not so much whilst people are in shift work but whilst they're resting off 
um, sleeping at home. And I actually, a guy gave me a very specific example two weeks ago. He said, it's very hard for him to sleep during the day because his bedroom um, is, it's just like, it's not two stories, just like a, like a, like a classic bungalow we were saying in England or Ireland. But, you know, it's just a one story house people would say here in Australia and his bedroom's at the front and they get deliveries during the day um, because of all the online shopping. The, the postman or the delivery guy bangs the door but on top of that, he said there's lots of noise around there because there's a main road nearby. And plus, it's a high crime area. So even during right. the day, people are getting robbed. And so he's like, it's it's really, it's just not conducive to sleep. And when I started looking right. at some of the studies on this as well, and I had looked at this before, interesting enough, a lot of studies in the US show that people who basically are, um, you know, from... Uh, and it was more pronounced in, in Hispanics and, and Black people in America who are more associated with lower socioeconomic brackets... And the suburbs that they lived in or the, or the areas, basically there was a correlation there between the crime and the sleep, which makes sense because of the, obviously the sirens and, the, and, and what was going on. And it was interesting when they started teasing that data apart, it wasn't so much that, you know, the gunshot, let's say if someone got shot or there was a big racket outside that had woken them up, it was all the kerfuffle afterwards, ambulances and police coming and going, people being asked questions. It was all of that that seemed to last affected disturbances as well so it's not just if you have the trauma growing up it's also if you have the external environment as well it can be traumatizing too and you yeah. just think to people man if, if you're if you're growing up in a, in a poor social economic bracket you got lots of background noise or you know you're in a poor suburb that's near a freeway motorway it's just it's just constant isn't it it's just like completely you know ruining your sleep and that's just one element of health that we've you can even associate that with there's probably heaps of other outcomes as well that would fall outside our remit as sleep scientists slash chronobiologists. But it's really interesting when you start piecing these things together. It's like just yeah. putting together a big Lego, a Lego brick house of all the stuff that kind of makes us really I think bad. it comes down to, to arousal threshold. Um, and so what we mean by arousal threshold is the intensity of a stimulus that is required to wake somebody up. So if you have a very high arousal threshold, then it takes a very loud, very you know, stressful experience to wake you up. Whereas if your arousal threshold is very low, then a very small noise can wake you up. But if you think about early childhood experiences, if somebody is, is maltreated during childhood, there's going to be some sort of fear of going mm -hmm. to sleep. Yeah. Um, and so the arousal threshold is probably going to be very low because of the safety concern. We're very vulnerable when we're asleep. And, mm. you know, we talk about this. If we, When I first introduce sleep as a topic to people that don't know anything about sleep, we say that, you know, animals in the wild are putting themselves at risk for being eaten, at risk of predation. We're very vulnerable when we're asleep. And I suppose if you're in a family with a, chaotic, a chaotic family, potential for harm then your arousal threshold is going to be very low it's going to be um very critical to your survival to be able to wake up very quickly and that probably then stays with the individual and then predicts how they're going to sleep later on the arousal threshold remains very low because it's it's vital for your survival um and so is there a way that we can now intervene and change that so that's something that i'm very interested in at the moment is how can we increase somebody's arousal threshold when they're in a safe situation so obviously if, if you're an individual's in, a, in an environment where there's you know lots of chaos going on outside then maybe it is still very good that they're waking up okay we need to be able to draw a line when that's going to implicate their health further down the line if they're constantly waking up but it is for your survival to be able to wake up to these situations um 
Yeah, and, and the other thing as well, Nicola, on that same topic, we see this as well, even in good sleepers, and particularly you look at some of the data around them, and this is not only reported data, but also basically from self-reported people give this example as people who um, travel a lot uh, for work to stay in different yeah. hotels. And they always say, when I'm on the road, I sleep really bad in hotels. And it's the same thing again. It's like, and I often give this kind of very basic thing is that when we go into these stages of sleep, like stage one, two, and three, and whatever, we go up and down across the night, we're also a bit like we have these little arousals that we might only have like micro awakenings where it's nearly like, like a little periscope comes up and looks around because it's a new environment for us. And it's very, yeah. you know, it's very, it's very new to us and depending on, and that's why I say to people, if you're traveling a lot, pick a good hotel and spend a bit of extra money because in a, in a crappier hotel, doors are going to bang. It's going to be big lobbies in the area. You know, you're going to have all that coming in where if you spend an extra $50 or 50 pound to get a room where the noise is going to be less, you're not going to hear what's going on in the room next door and so on and so on it's just really going to be worth your while having that good sleep environment because we're hyper vigilant when we do travel. Yeah. And, and, you know, it can take us numerous nights to get used to it. And I don't have any data about this, but personally, um, I did, I used to do a lot of travel when I worked for a mining company and even a few years ago before the pandemic. And I know other people said the same, I would actually try to pick the same hotel over and over again, if I knew it was a good hotel, because there was a f- familiarity with checking in. There was a familiarity with the, the whole process of getting breakfast, checking out, going to the airport and all that familiarity just reduced all the stress for me. So I could just yeah, go and do my work, idea. do my work, do my exercise and then whatever. And so the things that were important to me traveling was, um, you know, kind of, and, and even it didn't have to be, but was really was number one was picking a good hotel for a good sleep environment. So a good solid room and a comfortable bed and um, had a good shower. They were kind of important to me. The second thing was having a gym in case the weather was bad so I could exercise and a big enough gym, not one of these kind of pokey, tiny rooms, but a big enough gym that was yeah. open. And then the final one was actually access to um, access to the work that, where I was working. So uh, where a lot of people just go, I'll just pick somewhere right beside work, but it could be a really crappy environment and then they're not getting enough sleep and then they're just like a lunatic. So they're the kind of three factors I always look at when I'm um, booking, a, booking a hotel and I'll end up spending probably 100 or $150 more a night, but it's worth it to me because I can... Um, I can feel refreshed next day and, and do a good day's work. So, yeah, yeah, that's, no, that's excellent. That's you're really prioritizing your sleep there. That's good. And like you say, with the familiarity, we need to have routine in order to get yeah. to sleep. I I find it very difficult if I'm pushed outside of my bedtime routine, my sleep really suffers because I I really very rigidly need my um I very much need to go to bed at 10 30. I need to have a certain setup in order to get to sleep. And once that's broken. <laughs> I can suffer from not being able to get to sleep and not being able to stay asleep. So I quite like that idea that you'll pick the same hotel so that you know the routine mm. of that hotel. You know what to expect. Everything's familiar. Your brain can then go, oh, yeah, I remember this. It's familiar. It's safe. I can get to sleep. I don't need to have my periscope coming up in the middle of the night to check for safety. Yeah, I try to automate as many things as I can in my life where I don't have to think about them. You know, the same guy brings me to the airport and to spend a bit of extra money to use a car service. So I'm not stressing about getting a taxi early in the morning you know, all of those type of things. I am um, same routine, uh, even so much that if I have flights in advance, I'll pick the same seat. So I'm just like on autopilot. So I don't, I can, I want to lower that stress because I'm, yeah, I'm going out 120% the whole time. So I just want to take away as many things because I find when I get out of routine, then I start forgetting things and then I start losing things as well. I lose my bag. I'll drop my wallet. Like everything's just out. So the more things are standardized, <laughs> the more things I can do. But um, that might be just um, what we call um, CMB, classic male behavior. 
Nicola, we I could talk for hours with you, but I know we're kind of running out of time. But I do want to talk to you about one more paper, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, because it's another one that caught my interest as well. And the title of the paper was Sustained Wakefulness and Visual Attention Moderation by Chronotype. So this was a paper where, as you described, in 26 good sleepers. How do you classify a good sleeper? Pisky. The pisky. All right, of course. So five, <laughs> five, or, five or less on the pisky gives you a good sleeper. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Five or more okay. on, on the pisky. Um, and so what we looked at here, um, this is an old paper as well, 2016. So this was a, a nice experimental study. So we also have, well, I say we use, we use the pisky, but we also do have a screening questionnaire as well to ensure that there's no other sleep disorders that are kind of creeping in. So we have a good, a good sleep history, a good um, mental health history and physical history, physical health history as well. So we can be sure that these are kind of good sleepers that are healthy, healthy participants. And so there's a lot of research out there looking at sleep and cognition. And you would think if you're sleeping very well, uh, then your cognition is going to be better during the next day. And that's typically the case. But what we wanted to look at here was whether there are optimum times for functioning for morning types versus evening types. And so what you might expect is that a morning type would have their optimum time of functioning after a good night of sleep. I think we also measured this as well to ensure that everybody had a good night's sleep leading up to the experiment. So oh, the baseline going in. Exactly. Because we want to make sure that sleep history is yeah. your sleep history. Your kind of um, immediate sleep history would be the night before. But we'd also want to make sure that your sleep history over the, the previous week has been relatively good, getting a relatively decent hour duration of sleep in that, that time leading up. So everyone starts at the same sort of baseline. So we wanted to see whether there are differences in morning types and evening types at different time of day. So this is what's known as the time of day effect. And so we had these 26 good sleepers and we measured their visual attention by the attention network test. And what this is, it's very similar to the visual, um, what's it called? Um, PVT. PVT, the PVT. Psych thank psychomotor you. vigilance test. Yeah, it's very similar to the psychomotor vigilance test where a crosshair comes up on screen and you have to simply press the button when you see it. Yeah. But this, this particular test has also some, it's intermixed with some other um, distractors. So you might have a distractor on screen. You have to indicate whether an arrow is pointing a particular way. So it's not just a case of, of visual intent. It's not, it's not just identifying the, the on-screen symbol. It's identifying which direction something is facing. It also has distractors come up. It also asks you to um, be able to distinguish between an incongruent and a congruent trial. So it's asking you a few different bits, but all within the context of a very quick finger press. And so it's measuring your accuracy and it's also measuring your speed. So what we get out of this attention network test is three measures of attention. So we get um, your orienting response, which is how you kind of distinguish information that's coming in. Your alerting, how quick you are to respond. So that's the alerting factor is, is, is more similar to the standard PVT. And we also have executive control. So how we filter out those incongruent and congruent trials. So it's measuring these three different types of attention. So we wanted to see, OK, do we perform best if we're a morning type in the morning or in the evening? And if you're an evening type in the morning or evening based on on these different types of attention. And let me have a look at these results. I'm going to have to remind myself of these results. But I think we found quite a striking 
um, asynchrony effects. Let me just have a look at this. I can bring up the so, figures here if it helps. No, that's all right. No, we're, we're good with that. We're good with that. Um, so we had a period of, I think it was 18 hours. Let me have a look. You've got the abstract there. So yeah, 18, 18 hours, hours of sustained yeah. wakefulness. Now, this is typical of most people's waking day. So somebody's waking up at 8 a.m. And the way that we, we made sure that they were waking up at 8 a.m., we'd send them a text message or we'd give them a phone call. So we had a research assistant who was kind of prompting them and, and, and checking the time they're waking up. We also had actigraphy so we could validate yep. that they were waking up at the time that we expected. So all of our participants were waking up and they they performed this test of, of attention at 8 a.m. They were then awake for these 18 hours, made sure they weren't falling asleep and they were tested again at 2 a.m. So, I mean, this is, I mean, this happens. People get up at these times generally, right? And going to bed at 2 a.m. Okay, it's a long day, but this isn't out of the ordinary. But oh, I, think it's, actually, I think it's actually quite quite common, uh, Nicola. Yeah. Just, just sorry, I don't want to break your train of thought, but we published recently in Applied Ergonomics, it was the biggest study in, in mining and we published it recently. And we had 75 mining shift workers um, in that and the average sleep for a day shift worker on a mining operation working a 12 and a half hour shift in a high risk environment the average sleep on day shift was about six hours 10 minutes wow on day shift so that this is exactly representative of what goes on in these type of yeah. industries and on yeah. night shift it was about five and a half hours and on days off it was about maybe seven seven hours and ten so there was very few nights where they were getting seven to nine hours of sleep so this is exactly yeah. what typical. goes on this is not this is People might say, oh, that never happens. Well, it's in particularly in the high-risk oil and gas mining industries with 12, 12 and a half hour shifts. And then if there's overtime for some strange reason, not, not that it happens too much, but from the areas I've worked in, but it's very, very, uh, this is very true, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, this is the kind of research that I like doing. It's all well and good doing, you know, total sleep deprivation studies where you would put people in a lab and make sure that they're awake for at least 24 hours. Some studies have 36 hours in, in total sleep deprivation studies. But, you know, OK, that's all well and good to look at mechanisms to understand what mechanisms are involved um, in arousal and, and cognitive decline or, or performance deficits generally. But actually, is that applicable to the real world? So this is what I like about this study is that it's real world. This is, you know, it's, as we've said, it's not out of the ordinary being awake for 18 hours. But the interesting thing with this study is that we found an asynchrony effect. And what we mean by that is that our morning types, their visual attention was better in the evening at 2 a.m. Well, I say evening in the early, early morning. And our evening types performed better in the morning than they did in the evening so we kind of looked at this data and thought ah have we coded something wrong yeah, yeah <laughs> you yeah, kind yeah. of think wow how's this come about but actually when we looked in the literature this is a known effect and it's possible that in one time point in the context of this study but one snapshot the morning types are kind of overcompensating because they know that it's not their optimum time for performance and so they're putting in more motivational factors more behavioral control and more effort and we had measure I think we had measures of effort as well and we, so we, we could see that actually that, that these morning types were putting in more effortful control at that late time point after they've been awake for a long time our evening types on the other hand they knew that the morning time was not their optimum and they put in more effort and effortful control to keep their attention um, on task and so I think in short term in the short term if we know that we're going to be awake for a long time then we can be kind of confident that our behavior will enable us to perform well. 
we put in extra motivational measures to make sure that we can perform. If we were to experience this time and time again, I'm sure those motivational factors would reduce that actually we would then see what we would expect yeah. a synchrony effect. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you was, was this just for one or two nights or how long did it go on for? Because would we, would we then see a kind of a decline and people would kind of go back over? I think we would. This is only one time point. So we only did this once. So we had the morning and the evening and that was it. Then they were out of the study. But I would I would hypothesize that if we were to do this again, we would then see that the performance deficits would then eventually be in line with what we would expect according to their chronotype. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because just taking that from one time point and then looking at um looking across to what's a methodology paper, but looking across to um to other ones, um, this 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 paper we did recently uh, definitely comes to mind. And this was, like I said, published in Applied Ergonomics more towards safety people. But we put this infograph into the paper, which I, I really like and I put up in presentations because we used a combination of um, actigraphy and questionnaires and biomathematical modeling, which you, you may have used yourself. Nice. But so the, in this one here, it just, um, I should really have this picture on hand, but you can see here, you know, a person wakes up at half three in the morning, the drive to the airport, to get on the flight at half five, then they work these seven day shifts. Mm -hmm. And this is the this is the output from the safety fast model, a biomathematical model that was developed by the US military, which goes on a scale yeah. of zero, zero to 100. And 77 would indicate, um, or would be similar to being intoxicated to 0.05% in terms of reaction time, which has been correlated with PBT. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not too bad here, but you can see here the sleep duration for those seven days. Um, and that's all day shifts that are sleeping at night. Um, so you can see it's actually quite low. They do get this bump yeah. in sleep here because they change over from days to nights and then they do seven night shifts. But you can see the successive decline from 87 of alertness um, right down to nearly 67% here yeah, wow. when they come off yeah. their last night shift. And then they obviously fly home after doing that night shift with no sleep, maybe a little bit of nap on the plane, and then they might drive home. So they're at a high risk here when they're driving home. Yeah. And then, it, then you can see you know, basically the sleep very rarely, that's the highest sleep duration there of seven hours and 25, uh, sorry, there are seven hours and 58 minutes. And the next best one then is seven hours, 25 minutes. Now look, that's group averages, 75 people. There's going to be, you know, subcategorized those people as well. But it makes me think about if you're doing it for one time point here with morningness and evenness type people, the difference, what is the effect of that? Not only over seven successive days, but when we flip them around and do night shift, because now we have yeah. more than people doing night shift and we've got, you know, and vice versa. So would that be effect as well? And how long can people keep that up? Because I think people are very good in the short term at overriding these cognitive um, sort of declines or dips. Um, but when you have successive nights, and, and one of the reasons why I left the military is that when you go for nights and nights of sleep restriction or deprivation or mistiming or grabbing sleep wherever you can, you, you turn into a zombie. Like it's, it's interesting yeah. because... You, your rational mind just goes out the window and you think you're doing really well, but you're, you're actually not. And as when I was an instructor before I left the military, I saw people behaving like that. And I'm like, these guys think they're onto it and they're just walking around here. And if this was a war, you know, they're, they're, they're gone, they're dead. Like, and you think to yourself, like how many people died from sleep deprivation throughout the wars, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in our, in our history. But um, yeah, this is this, your study there, Nicola really kind of makes me think about, that same sort of protocol extrapolated across this or even um, looking we, at it. I'm sure that we would yeah. see performance declines. Yeah. Absolutely it's would. Very, if, very if, interesting. With successive, with successive nights. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you what time, was, was there a standardized time that that attention test 
was measured in that study? We didn't do any attention tests on this. We just used uh, biomathematical modeling as oh, a proxy. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we we didn't have, with 75 people trying to do it, it was very difficult. Um, the methodology paper is published as well, so it was primarily actigraphy, and we did prevalence of sleep disorder questionnaires like sleep apnea, um, shift work disorder, and so on. And what was what was also interesting in that in that paper as well, and we're, we've got a paper under review at the moment looking at interventions in, in a similar in this group as well. So education, uh, biofeedback, and so on, because very little has been done, but lots mm. are used. And what we did find in here, which is also interesting, talking about sleep disorders, is um, uh, actually you might you might enjoy this one as well. This this uh, this graph here, which is basically the biomathematical output. Oh, nice. Um, so it just shows like when people come in, the decline of alertness over day shift to night shift, and then when they're commuting home, oh, wow, this, like, yeah, really okay. this dip here, which is actually you know very critical period, and that's their their biggest dip. Exactly, yeah. But we found here with the associations with those questionnaires for sleep disorders that uh, increased risk for OSA was associated with age and BMI. So for every one year increase in age, the odd risk um, increased for OSA by 6%. Mm. And then for every year, for every one unit increase in BMI, the odds of risk increased uh, for 19%. 19%, and, yeah. yeah. And so like, it's not the fittest and healthiest group. Um, and so... And a lot of people in shift work think like as they get older, they get better at managing shift work. And, yeah. and, and that's a misnomer. They actually don't. And, you know, back in this data set here, you can see that the, that the group was actually, um, you know, uh, I think it's the age in there, 37 plus or minus 11. So not very young, um, but not very old either. And no. um, yeah, and some high risk alcohol consumption there as well. So a few factors there that's... Um, that's quite interesting. And you can see there are 45 or 60% of the shift workers screen positive for at risk of one or more sleep disorders. So yeah, not, not the healthiest type of groups. And then you add in what you found, it really makes me start thinking about the impact on performance and, and long-term, you know, sleep health and so on. Yeah. Nice paper. I'll check that out. Nicola, we have been going for an hour and a half and I could go for about more, three more hours, but I am cognizant of, of your of your time and I'd love to have you on again to discuss more of these areas. Um, really. Yeah, I'd be uh, happy to. Yeah, really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. But before you go, can you let people know um, where they can find you? Um, there's obviously the Sleep Universal site, which I'll put up here now, and you've got some great blogs on there and all about you as well. But how can people get in contact with you, follow you, what else can they do apart from your website? Yeah, so the website, as you say, is up there. It's sleep-universal.com. Or you can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm they probably best to get me on LinkedIn, actually. I'm Nicola Barkley, sleep scientist at Sleep Universal on LinkedIn. Or follow me on Twitter at Nicola.barkley. I think that's my Twitter handle. I don't use Twitter so much. You found me on Twitter, but that was a miracle. I, I'm starting to use Twitter more, but um, yeah, you, or you can follow me on there. And I, the more conversations I have on Twitter, the more I shall use it. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. you can email me at nicola.barkley at sleep-universal.com. No problem. We will put all these links into the show notes and you can uh, go to Sleep Universal and contact Nicola through there as well. Check out the services, check out the publications, lots of them in there. Um, highly recommended. I found them really interesting. I just wish I had more time to read through them in more depth um, and have better questions. But this was great to explore, <laughs> to explore all this. So Nicola, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. It's been great talking to you.